Good morning. That's really what we want to be about here. Uh, I don't know if any other song describes uh, what we should be focusing on, turning our eyes to Jesus, looking full into his face, and, and as a result of doing that, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what we want to be about, and today we want to focus our attention on Christ. I attended a seminary at a it's, it's now called Columbia International University. When I was there, it was called Columbia Bible College and Seminary and Graduate School of Missions. Okay, they shortened it a little, thank you. It's in South Carolina. And the motto of the school is this, to know him and to make him known. I like that. It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point, and most importantly, it's biblical. I think it describes what we as Christians are to be about what our lives are to be focused on, knowing Jesus and making him known. That's Christianity. This is clearly seen in the book of Philippians, the book we're studying. Paul, in chapters 1 and 2, which we've been studying, has mainly been focusing on the making him known part, advancing the gospel, taking the gospel to those in need. He's described what it looks like to live a life to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That focused on, uh, the focus has been on living a life that testifies to others about the fact that, that Jesus Christ is a reality in your life. That you trust in Christ. That you trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, your Lord and Savior, He's your Lord and Savior and He's working in and through your life. Live like this, Paul says in chapters 1 and 2, be united in Christ, stand firm, strive and fight for the gospel together. Be humble, consider others more important than yourselves. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, meaning you've been saved by grace through faith. Now, as the New Living Translation puts it, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Paul also gave us examples We looked at this last week of men who were living this way. Himself, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. They lived in a way that made Jesus known to others around them. Paul, again, in chapters 1 and 2 of Philippians, clearly teaches to make him known. Make him known. And we have an uh, an opportunity for that. I'm going to do a quick little application here. It was in your bulletin. I forgot to point it out to Tom. So I'm going to mention it here. We have our trunk or treat this Saturday, 31st. We have an opportunity Saturday morning to... So, so Saturday evening, we're going to be here and we're, we're, because it's a, a special day that uh, people go out and go to different places, we're going to provide this opportunity for them to come here and have a, a little alternative to knocking on doors and things. But that morning at 10 o'clock... It's in your bulletin if you saw it. We're going to do some what we call canvassing. We're going to get some little flyers and go out to the neighborhoods uh, around here. So if you would like an opportunity to help make him known to engage this neighborhood Saturday, be here at 10 o'clock and, and join us as we do that. It won't take too long, maybe an hour or so of your time. Make that happen. So making him known, that's what we've been talking about. Now that brings us, now we're in chapter 3. We come to chapter 3. We're in the first 11 verses this week. And in chapter 3, the focus is going to shift. 
The shift will be from making him known to knowing him. As we've seen, Paul's been focusing on, on, on how you live the Christian life. The focus has been on actions, the actions of a saved person. How a saved person should work out their salvation. The focus has been on who you are and, and what you do. But he, but he wants to make sure that the Philippians and we aren't confused by this. He wants to make sure we understand that who you are and what you do has absolutely nothing to do with your righteousness before God. Your righteousness before God. Righteousness, your right standing before God. What causes God to accept you into His his presence has nothing to do with who you are or what you do. Paul wants the Philippians and us to understand that that is not what matters, who you are and what you do. It, it, It cannot make us acceptable to God. And the problem that was occurring in Philippi in this uh, early church uh, in different places, as we'll see, is that there are those who are trying to teach that there are things that they themselves must do in order to attain the righteousness of God. There's stuff you have to do. So in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11, the question Paul addresses is this, what or who should you trust in? To be righteous, that you might be righteous before God. Should you trust in ourselves, our own efforts, our own abilities, our flesh, or should we trust in Christ alone? And the answer will be Christ alone. Wow. I don't know what I'm sitting down. I'm done here. You guys got it. <laughs> Christ alone. Our righteousness, our righteousness comes from our relationship with Christ. Our righteousness comes from our relationship with Christ. Our righteousness and our our joy comes not from who we are or what we do, but from knowing Christ Jesus, our Savior. Okay? So let's walk through this passage, Philippians 1, um, excuse me, 3, 1 through 11. In verse 1, Paul writes, finally, or furthermore, this is a transition. So he's been talking about one thing, he's going to transition. Finally, it doesn't mean this is the last thing, he's about in the middle of the book. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, my brothers, those who, like Paul himself, have trusted in Jesus Christ, who share the same Father, God, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This command, and it is a command, to rejoice. To rejoice in the Lord is is repeated a number of times in this letter. It's one of the main themes Paul, throughout the letter, exhorts the Philippians to rejoice in all circumstances. To pursue their joy, not in the world, the things of the world, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. In their relationship with Christ. In knowing Christ. That's where the joy comes from. And the reason, the reminder to rejoice in the Lord comes here is because of what follows. What we're going to look at. Paul needs to put out a warning to the Philippians. He needs to make sure they're moving in the right direction. He needs to make a, maybe a little correction, an exhortation. He makes, makes sure they're, they're, they're moving in the correct path, the direction of finding their righteousness, their right standing before God, and their joy, their rejoicing in the Lord. This is the direction of knowing Jesus. Verse 1, he continues, to write the same thing to you is no trouble, is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. 
This refers to the warning that's about to come. To write this stuff, what I'm about to say is no trouble and it's safe for you. Possibly in other letters or in person, Paul has said similar things to what he's about to say. But he's going to say them again. Why? No, 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 no sweat for him. Just a little ink and pen. I'm going to say it again. And more importantly, it's safe for you. It's safe for you. The warning that we're about to read, the warning that's going to follow, is, is for the safety of the Philippians. It will safeguard their faith from false teachers. False teachers will come, and if you heed this warning I'm about to give you, you'll be protected, you'll be safe. For those, it's, it's, it's going to protect them from those who would distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, he hits these false teachers, those who are distorting the gospel. He hits them head on. He's not polite. He's not nice. He's not politically correct. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, to understand this, uh, this verse particularly, we need a little context. We need a little background. We need to understand what's going on at this time in, in church history. This is the early church. Many Christians, especially the leaders, were, uh, had come, were, were Jewish, were, were born, were, were Jewish uh, people. Jesus was a Jew, the disciples were, a Jew, were Jews, Paul was a Jew, and the Jewish religion that they had come from had many laws and customs. We, we know them as the Old Testament. And one of the most important was this thing called circumcision. I won't describe it. I think we all know what it is. This became a problem. This became a problem when uncircumcised Gentiles became Christians. Some Jews believed that to be a true follower of God, a true Christian, a true follower of Jesus even, you had to first become a Jew. You had to follow the Jewish practices. And you had to follow all the Jewish laws and the traditions, including and especially Circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of entering into the covenant of being part of God's people. These false teachers are known as, does anybody remember what they're called? Judaizers. If you were here for our study in the book of Galatians, the whole book of Galatians is sort of written to combat the, the, the city of Galatia, the province of Galatia, was being inundated with these teachers. It seems like they're also having some impact in Philippi. So he hits them here briefly. And if you were with us in our, uh, our study of Galatians, you know that Paul is not kind to them. He does not like them or what they're doing. And the same thing is true in Philippians. Notice again, he refers to them as dogs. Now when we think of dogs, we might think of uh, our cute little pets, our furry little creatures, uh, my, my daughter... She doesn't live at home anymore because she got married. That's a good thing. Uh, but when she did come home, uh, when she lived at home, we, had three, we have three dogs, and she called the dogs, like, handsome. They were the boy dogs. Oh, you're so handsome. And that is not the dogs. The handsome dogs are not what Paul is talking about. Paul, uh, but the, the dogs Paul referred to are wild and vicious animals. They roam the streets, often attacking people. And in Scripture, when someone is called a dog, it's never a good thing. It's not positive. I guess that's probably still true. In Matthew 7, 6, Jesus said, Do not give dogs, or hypocrites, he was talking about, what is holy. Do not cast your pearls before swine. 
Don't give dogs what's holy. Also, the Jews in that day often called Gentiles dogs. And so here Paul turns the word back on these Judaizers. They call Gentiles dogs, but in reality, they are the dogs, the wild, vicious attackers of truth. And even more than dogs, they are evildoers. Evildoers, teaching that you must follow the law before you before or after you come to Christ is not just a mistake, it's not just a theological error, it's evil. It strikes at the heart of the gospel. It's a false gospel, and Paul won't tolerate it. The gospel teaches that salvation is a free gift, a gift of God's grace. It's received by faith in Jesus Christ, who gave up His life that we might live who went to the cross and died in our place. And to teach something different, to teach there's something else. Christ's death isn't enough. You have to be circumcised. Christ's death isn't enough. You have to go to church every Sunday. Christ's death isn't enough. You have to read your Bible. You have to pray. All of which are good things. But to teach that you have to add those in, that Christ's death isn't good enough. Paul calls it evil. So often we want to tolerate to be tolerant of those who, in our minds, come uh, pretty close. They're pretty close to the gospel. They may add something or take something away, but, but they still talk about Jesus. They still use the name of Jesus, so they must be okay. That's not what Paul says. These Judaizers were teaching that, yes, Jesus were in the, were, they were part of the, they were becoming part of the church. Yeah, we're okay with Jesus. It's okay to trust in Jesus. Jesus, It's okay that Jesus died for your sins. But first, you have to do certain things to make it in. You have to obey this Old Testament ceremonial laws. You have to become part of God's covenant people, the Jews. And Paul calls that evil. And finally, he, he says, they mutilate the flesh. This is a reference to that the practice of circumcision, of requiring circumcision. Not that All who are circumcised mutilate the flesh. Circumcision was given uh, in Genesis to Abraham as a sign of God's covenant, being part of God's people. But those who say that to receive salvation you must be circumcised have turned a sign of God's covenant into a mutilation of the body. Paul then compares, uh, he goes on, so that's the three things he says, your dogs, you're evil and you're mutilators of the flesh. And then he compares them to himself and, and other believers, like the Philippians. Verse 3, for we, we believers, we who trust in Christ, those who follow Paul, we are the circumcision. We are, we are God's covenant people. Not because we've been circumcised in our flesh. Paul himself was circumcised. He was a, a Jew, as we'll find out, a, a Jew of Jews. But most, if not all, the Philippians were not circumcised. They were uncircumcised Gentiles. So they were not the circumcision because they had been circumcised, but because we are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. It's not about the external physical circumcision anymore. I said anymore like it it was at one one time. It's always been a sign It's always been a sign. It's never been, it's a sign of what's gone on in your heart. 
It's not an external physical, it's not the external physical circumcision or obedience to the law. It's about those who worship by the Spirit of God. They've been given God's Spirit, and the Spirit then worships through them. And they glory, or they, or they revel, they rejoice in Christ Jesus. Their life is about Christ Jesus. They rejoice in the Lord and what He's done for them. The focus of the believer, the focus, the opposite of what Paul is calling these Judaizers, the focus of, of the true believer is not external religious practices that earn God's favor. The focus of the believer is the glory, the rejoicing in, the reveling, the lifting up of Jesus Christ to give Christ Jesus all the credit for your salvation. So you, you see, the, if... if if it's circumcision, if it's anything besides Christ, then you have reason to glory in yourself. But if it's only Christ, He's the only one to receive the glory. And so Paul says, and here's the the crux of the warning he's given the Philippians, and put no confidence in the flesh. The Judaizers, the dogs, evildoers, mutilators, put their confidence in their flesh, in their circumcision, in their obedience to the law, who they are and what they do. Paul's contrasting the Judaizers with true believers. And the difference is the Judaizers put confidence in their flesh, in their own efforts, but the believer puts no confidence in the flesh. The believer knows that his flesh is, in fact, sinful. The believer knows that there's nothing good in his flesh. And so he puts his confidence, not in himself, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in the cross of Christ, in the gospel of Christ, in the fact that Christ died in his place. I've said it before, and and I'll say it again. This is the difference between biblical Christianity, you can call it, some people are against the word religion. I would say true religion, real religion, religion from God. This is the difference between biblical Christianity and man-made religion. At the heart of every man-made religion is confidence in the flesh. Confidence in what I can do. Confidence in what I can earn. Confidence in who I am. That in my own efforts, I will somehow become acceptable to God. But that is not the gospel. That is anti-gospel Man's religion teaches you how to try and make yourself good enough to reach God. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. The gospel teaches that you can't be good enough, so God reached down in Christ to save you. So put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is, I I don't know if he would use these words, but I would. He says that to put confidence in the flesh is, is craziness. It's crazy talk. There's no reason for it. Now, to emphasize this truth, this warning, Paul uses himself as an example. Okay? So he said, no, co- no confidence in the flesh. And here is an example of why this is not good. Though, though I'm, verse 4, though I myself have reason for... Con- He's speaking tongue-in-cheek here, just so we understand, uh, sort of ironically... Though I myself have reason for confidence in the... He's just said, no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason. If anybody has reason, I myself have reason to put confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. The Judaizers are teaching that you need to do certain things if you want to be righteous. 
And Paul says that if that's the case, then I'm your man. I'm the guy. If anyone has the right to put confidence in the flesh, it's me. Not me, Paul. I I have no right, just so we're clear. Then in verse 5 and 6, he gives a list. He lists out his personal credentials, his accomplishments, who he is and what he's done. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to, a zeal, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All of these things that Paul says about himself shows that in his flesh, he is the top of the class. As prescribed by the law, Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. That was the best. He followed the law. It wasn't, it wasn't some later day that he was circumcised. He was born into God's chosen people, the people of Israel. He's a descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, who who became Israel. And not only that, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, maybe that's not a whoop-de-doo to us, but the Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was a very proud tribe. Benjamin was the twelfth son of of Jacob, the only son to be born in the the promised land. Out Out of the tribe of Benjamin came Israel's first king, if you remember, King Saul. Remember Paul's named after Saul. Paul's Hebrew name is Saul. And it was the tribe of Benjamin alone who remained loyal to David in the, in the, when the kingdoms began to split. Uh, Benjamin rem, remained loyal to David in the tribe of Judah. So there's pride in being part of uh, Benjamin. Paul also says he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Hebrew is another name for the, the Jewish people. And calling himself a Hebrew of Hebrews probably refers to two, two things. First, he was a pure Jew, pure Jew. His blood was no Gentile blood. From Benjamin down, he was Jewish. And second, that he, unlike many, uh, we talked about this in the past, Hellenistic Jews, are you the, the Jews that went out and lived among the Greeks and their first language was probably Greek, they learned Greek. They, their culture was more Greek. They still held on to some of the... He, he's saying he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, even though he was raised not in Jerusalem, but in uh, Tarsus. He was still brought up in the Hebrew culture. He spoke the Hebrew language. He could read the Old Testament in the original Hebrew. Also, Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most orthodox of the Jewish religious groups. They sought to follow the law in all they did. And this caused Paul, before he was a believer, he he was zealous about these things. He was zealous about the law. And he became, because of his zeal, he became a persecutor of the church because he was so entrenched in this uh, obedience to the law. He was a great defender of Judaism. And he followed the law to the letter. He was in every way legalistically righteous. Paul's point in listing all these things wasn't, wasn't to brag, his point is this, I am everything and more that these teachers, these dogs, these evildoers, mutilators are teaching you to be in my flesh. I by far meet all of their criteria and above. Based on my credentials and accomplishments, I'm the prototype of what these people say it takes to be saved. I'm the man. But, verse 7, but... And now we come to Christ. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had, all of that stuff, who I was, what I did, 
I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's saying that whatever advantage he was born into and whatever he tried to work for, who he was and what he did is a loss for the sake of Christ. Before his conversion on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9, if you haven't read it, read it. Paul believed that that his flesh, who he was and what he did, was was the key to his righteousness before God. There was this thought in the Judaism of the day that your good deeds had to outweigh your bad. You ever heard that before? That's that's the way they thought. As long as I did enough good, as long as I obeyed the laws, as long as I stayed strong, that his credentials and accomplishments would get him into heaven. That when he died and he faced judgment, if God were to ask him, why should I let you into heaven? Paul would have responded with verses 5 and 6, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let me in. But now Paul counts or considers or understands all of that as a loss as worthless for the sake of Christ. Paul then makes uh, what he's just said in verse 7, he makes it completely clear. Verse 8, indeed, even more, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Wow. Wow. That's what Chad was talking about, right? This is powerful stuff here in Philippians chapter 3. Indeed, Paul says, not just the things I've listed, and it's not just that list, but everything, and in the Greek that everything means everything, all things. I am and all I am and have accomplished in my flesh, it's a loss. My fleshly efforts are rubbish. They're trash, only worthy of being thrown away, tossed aside. Now, I don't know about you, but every week, uh, well, maybe even every day, my trash can gets filled with stuff. I, I have an indoor trash can that gets filled, poured into the outdoor. It gets filled with things that I no longer need, things that are worthless, used up, and broken. That's what Paul says about his own efforts. They're not needed. They're worthless. They're broken. They serve no function in helping me reach my ultimate goal. And what is his ultimate goal? Before Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road, his goal could have been stated like this. I, I'm going, my goal is to strive in my own efforts to do all I can to make myself acceptable, holy before God. But now, his goal is completely different. His goal, what he's striving for, what he puts all his effort into, is to know Christ Jesus to gain Christ, to have a, a, a growing, vibrant, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ would be the center of his life. That Jesus would not just be part of his life, but Jesus would be the reason for his living. Nothing else compares. For the sake of knowing Christ, Paul is willing, willing to suffer the loss of all things, of everything else. His personal goals, his efforts, his wants and his desires are all tossed on the, the rubbish, rubbish heap, the trash pile. But they're replaced with something better, much better. Paul says the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
That phrase, surpassing worth, is the Greek word hyper-echo. It doesn't have to, hello, hello, not that kind of echo. Hyper-echo. It means to be above all. There's nothing greater than knowing Christ Jesus. Nothing great. It's above all. Christ must be our ultimate treasure, our ultimate goal. Knowing Christ is that, as Jesus put it, as Jesus himself put it, is that, is that treasure that's buried in the field, and when you find it, you go sell everything that you might come and, and have it and possess Christ as your own, that I might gain Christ. Paul says, so what, so what does it mean to gain Christ? What does it mean to, to know Christ? You know, it's, it's not that complicated. It means the same thing that it means to know another person. Recently, I've been reminded, uh, I don't know if you guys were aware of this, but October 21st was a big day in our world. Anybody know what it was? Back to the Future Day. October, 15, October 21st, 2015. That's when Marty McFly went to the future, right? And so where's the hoverboards? Where's the uh, flying cars? I don't know. But that's not important to me. What's important is it reminds me because 30 years ago, October, not October 21st, July 5th, 1985, I'm doing the math, all right, uh, I got married the next day. And that night we went to see Back to the Future. It debuted the, the night before I was married. And we saw it. And so that reminds me, I've been married for 30 years. Dang. Wow. No, 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 no. Yeah, clap for her. <laughs> way to go. Yeah, way, way to go. But the point is, uh, I, uh, when I talk about knowing my wife, I know her pretty well. 30 years of knowing her, and she knows me pretty well. And it's the same thing knowing Christ. It's a relationship with a person. It takes time. It takes effort. It means to have a personal relationship with Him. Paul wanted, above all other things, to be in relationship with Jesus Christ, his Lord. He had given his life to Christ on the Damascus Road. He encountered Christ, and he was blown away. And, what uh, you know, Lord, I'll serve you Christ was his Lord, Christ was his Savior, and so Paul's goal in life has become to know Christ more and more. And knowing Christ, like knowing anyone, again, it takes effort. Paul understood that God was not interested in his personal resume. God was interested in a personal relationship. That's what he understood on that Damascus road. He was building his resume. What can I do? What can I do? Now I'm going to persecute the church, and that's going to build my resume. What can I do? But now he understands it's that personal relationship, knowing Christ. And that holds true for each and every one one of us. If we think God is impressed, if we think God is ever impressed with the great things we do, with the things we do for Him, then we'll be sadly, sadly mistaken. God will not be impressed until we turn all our efforts into knowing Christ. And the result of knowing Christ is awesome. It's amazing. It's our righteousness. We're accepted by God because we know Christ, because we're in relationship with Christ. Verse 9, And be found in Him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Knowing Christ, having this personal relationship with Christ, results in our righteousness. 
Not a righteousness that comes from our own efforts, from obedience to the law, from circumcision, from church attendance, from doing uh, uh, special outreach projects, from being a pastor, being a missionary. None of that. That's not where our righteousness comes from. It comes from Christ alone. But, but a righteousness that comes from Christ, uh, this right standing before God, we receive it through Christ. Paul's saying that in the past, he trusted himself in his own righteousness. He put confidence in his own flesh. But now he's trusted in Christ alone, in the righteousness of Christ, in, in Christ's acceptance before God. Paul's placed all his confidence and faith in trusting Christ. And instead of putting his efforts into making himself righteous, which is impossible, which Christ has already done, Paul puts all his efforts in a different direction. Yes, there's still effort to be made. There are still things to be done. But it's not to gain your righteousness. It's to gain Christ. It's to grow in your knowledge of Christ. It's to become uh, 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 to, to truly know Christ. Verse 10, he says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul's goal now was to know Christ in every possible way. First, he wanted to know him and the, and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection certainly refers to the fact that knowing Christ will result in our own resurrection from the dead. That's made clear in verse 11. Uh, that, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The power of his resurrection will resu- the power of Christ's resurrection and, and knowing Christ will result in our resurrection as well. But Paul's not only referring to the power to resurrect the dead. Paul's also referring to the power of the resurrected Christ that's available in our lives. In knowing Christ, in having a personal relationship with Christ, we receive the power of Christ to live a new life. Everything that we need to live the, the Christian life comes from Christ, from knowing Christ, from being in relationship with Christ. The power to love God, to love one another, to love our neighbor, and to love our enemies comes from knowing Christ. The power to do ministry, to be a witness for Christ comes from knowing Christ. The power to to overcome sin in our lives comes from knowing Christ. Is there a sin that no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, you just can't seem to overcome it? Let me suggest that instead of focusing your efforts on overcoming a specific sin, focus your efforts on knowing Christ. The more you know Christ, the more of His resurrection power is available to you. The more you're able to love, the more you're able to witness, the more you're able to overcome sin, and much more. Knowing Christ provides the power to live the Christian life. But there's another aspect of knowing Christ. Paul not not only wants to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, he also wants, and, and, and that seems good, we like that, okay. He also wants to know him by sharing his sufferings, okay, becoming like him in his death. That doesn't sound so awesome. Jesus' suffering and death were horrific, they were painful. All suffering is painful, that's why we call it suffering. 
But Paul understood what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if anyone truly wants to know me, if anyone wants to truly be in relationship with me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Paul understood that knowing and following Jesus meant denying himself. If he wanted the power provided by the resurrection, he had to die. He must die to his selfish desires. He must be willing, yes, even more than willing. He must desire to share in Christ's suffering. Paul understood that knowing Christ completely involves suffering as Christ suffered. And Paul did suffer as Christ suffered. Scripture tells us he suffered many beatings. He suffered in prison for preaching the gospel. He suffered rejection by his own people. And he was eventually killed. And in all of this, I believe he was rewarded, not just after his death, but during his life, he was rewarded by experiencing Christ in ways he could never have done if he had tried to avoid suffering. Paul knew Christ. And what about us? How much of Christ do you really want to know? I'm sure we want that power, that power of his resurrection in our lives. We want victory in Jesus we want to, uh, to love and to witness and to overcome sin. We definitely want to be raised from the dead into eternal life with our Savior. But that's only half. That's only part. It's not complete. Somehow, though, we've got it into our heads that God doesn't want us to suffer. There are even theologies, teachings out there that, that, that say if you are suffering... If you're suffering in this world, if you're a Christian and you're suffering, then uh, it's probably, you just don't have enough faith, brother. You need to have more faith. You must not know Christ if you're suffering, some would say. When we suffer, though, in any way, even if we don't hold to that particular way of thinking, uh, we often, where does our mind turn? When we begin to suffer, where does our mind turn? Our mind turns first to question, why me? Why is this happening to me? For us, suffering has become something to avoid at all costs. And I believe that we are paying a cost for avoiding suffering. For the most part, we've succeeded, we, uh, us Americans. For the most part, we've succeeded in many ways. I'm not saying there's no suffering. There is. But we've succeeded in many ways of limiting suffering from our lives. But we've also succeeded in not truly knowing Christ. To truly know Christ, you must be willing, I think more than willing, you must want to share in his sufferings. That's what Paul says. I don't know what that will look like uh, in each individual life. It may mean being rejected by family and friends as Jesus was rejected by his own people. It may, uh, for some like Paul and Jesus, it may mean actual physical suffering all kinds of suffering, all kinds of ways to know Christ in our suffering. But there's one, there's all kinds of, of kinds of sufferings, but there's one thing I'd like to notice about the suffering of both Christ and the Apostle Paul. Their suffering came when they were true to the message and the ministry that God had given them. Let me say that again. Their suffering came 
when they were true to the message and the ministry that God gave them. Christ suffered when he obeyed the Father all the way to the cross. Uh, He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. He did not, in himself, don't know how to explain this any better, want to go to the cross. If there's any way, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And he did the will of the Father, and he went to the cross. The Apostle Paul suffered when he obeyed God's calling on his life, when he became the Apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus could have avoided suffering by not going to the cross. Paul could have avoided suffering by keeping his faith to himself. I don't want to be that apostle to the Gentiles. I'm just going to head back to Tarsus. I'm going to have my own garden. I'm going to focus on me, maybe a little bit of my family. No suffering for me. But instead, he obeyed God's command and took the message of Christ to a lost world. This resulted in suffering. But the suffering resulted in knowing more of Christ Jesus. He shared in Christ's suffering. We avoid suffering by avoiding the call God has placed on our lives. We, like the Apostle Paul, we, like the Apostle Paul, are called to be messengers of Jesus Christ. I don't know, uh, I'm not, I don't think any of us are the Apostle to the Gentiles. If you are, raise your hand. No, just kidding. But we all are called to be messengers of Jesus Christ, to be witnesses, to take the gospel to our world. We're called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is where it all ties together, his first two chapters in here. We're all called to be messengers and ministers. But sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it means suffering. But when we avoid our calling, when we avoid suffering... We avoid knowing Christ. We have no opportunity to know Christ. If, if you've suffered in any sort of way, if you've suffered, you know that that is an opportunity to know Christ more, that his power, his presence becomes more real in times of suffering. I don't know why God did it that way, but he, he did, not I. For in our obedience to God, even and especially when that obedience leads to suffering, that's when the person and power of Christ is made known to us in, in deep ways. John Piper wrote, Suffering is a, a path deep into the heart of God. God has special revelations of His glory for His suffering children. So the question I want to leave you with, leave myself with this morning, is, is how bad do you want to know Christ? Do you, want, do, do, do you want your righteousness to be found in your relationship with Christ? Do you want to experience the resurrection power that Christ offers in your life? Do you want the power to love and to witness and to overcome sin and so much more? And do you want to share in his suffering? Do you want to become like him in his death? Do you want to know Christ in every possible way? There's the the power of resurrection, the sharing and the suffering, and and all that is in between. Do you want to grow in your relationship with Christ? If your answer to these questions is yes, then I have two uh, concluding applications for us this morning. First, we need to examine our lives. Ask God to reveal to you, to me, what are we holding on to? What in our life 
our lives is, is, is taking the place of knowing Christ. Is it, a, is it a sin we just won't give up? Is it a relationship that's not so good? Is it a job that just takes all our time? Is it some fun hobby or activity that we just can't stop doing? Or is it just our unwillingness to suffer? Is it our unwillingness to get out there in the world? What is taking the place of knowing Christ? What are you unwilling to throw away? What are you unwilling to put in the, in the, in the rubbish bin, in the trash heap that you might know Christ? For me, I, I'm sad to say, as I've examined my life this week, taking, it's probably, uh, this is a little uh, embarrassing even, it's probably my need to be entertained, you know, that, that gets in the way of my knowing Christ, that takes time that I could be knowing Christ. So what is it for you? And as you examine your life, as God begins even now to reveal those things, you need to let them go. You need to let them go that you might gain Christ. It's a, you can't have both. You can't have both. So the first application is to, with God's help, examine your life. Take some time. It's, it's, I mean, we're talking about gaining Christ here, knowing Christ. So what in your life is stopping you from knowing Christ? Is it worth five minutes to sit down and say, Lord, reveal to me anything in my life that's stopping me from knowing Christ? And then, Lord, help me to let that go. So that's the first application. With God's help, examine your life, ridding it of the things that are keeping you from knowing Christ. And second, the application, this is a little bit of cheating here, come back to church next week. Because in Philippians chapter 2, chapter 3, verses 12 through 4, 1, to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is, that's what we're going to cover next week. Paul's going to continue to focus on knowing Christ. He will call us uh, to press on, to press on, to never give up. I, I, have a hard, I had a real hard time not to going there this morning because there's so much good stuff. So I'm saying come back. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians and, and, and in the word to us from the Holy Spirit, will, will be encouraged and motivated and, I believe, inspired on how to practically move forward in knowing Christ and growing in relationship with Jesus Christ our Lord. So join us next week as we continue to explore the joy of knowing Christ. And join me as I conclude with, with prayer this morning. Father God, thank you for this time. Lord, thank you that we even have the opportunity to know Christ. I didn't even talk about that. I didn't talk about the great uh, a privilege and honor it is that you have given yourself to us. That we are not just your subjects, but we are your children. We are can be known by you. We can have relationship with you. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would examine our lives this week. What is it that's stopping us from knowing Christ more and more? What's keeping us back? What's holding us back from knowing Christ? Lord, reveal that to us and then in your power, we can't do it, Lord. In your power, help us to rid our lives of those things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand with us.